0: Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And wow, what a week, huh? Last Friday's derecho certainly turned our region upside down. We had fallen trees, we had power outages, we had all sorts of traffic, both inside and outside the Beltway. It's meant a whole lot of stress for a whole lot of people. People who are seeking peace, people who are seeking air conditioning, and above all, people who are seeking comfort. That's why this week we're bringing you a hearty helping of comfort, and a delicious one at that, chock full of flavors that'll soothe anyone's soul. It's our annual Down the Hatch show, where we present an hour of stories and interviews all about eating and drinking in the D.C. region. We'll go inside the world of ramen and hear why that cup of noodles that sells for less than a buck is suddenly getting the gourmet treatment. We'll check out big changes at a suburban ice cream stand that's become a cold and creamy community institution. And we'll learn why it isn't always easy for local breweries to deliver ice-cold beer to their customers. First, though, when it comes to the dining world, restaurants come and restaurants go. But since Memorial Day, we've seen nearly 20 eateries shut their doors in the D.C. region. Capital Q, Barbecue, Buda Bar, Casa Nona, Restaurant 3, Meatballs, Ireland's Four Fields. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Some of them plan on relocating. Others plan on reopening with a new concept. But others are simply saying, so long and thanks for all the fish. Or the barbecue. Or the meatballs. Or, so here we are on Wisconsin Avenue. In the case of one longtime institution in northwest D.C., Tenleytown area, all the deep-dish pizza. And there's a sign in front of Armand's Pizza. It says, Tenleytown, closing June 30th. Thank you, friends, for 37 years. Let's go inside. Armand's Chicago Pizzeria has several other locations in Maryland and Virginia, and they'll remain open. But co-owner Ron Neumeyer
1: Hi, I'm Rebecca. Hi. How are you? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. ...says it's
0: time for the flagship location to call it a day. Not only has the rent shot up since
1: 1975. The rent is almost $12,000 a month and looking like it's going to go up even well beyond that.
0: But business has slowed down.
1: Town used to be kind of a thriving bar scene, actually. There was nightclubs and live music and we stayed open until 2 a.m. Friday and Saturday and midnight Sunday through Thursday, but it's a completely different scene now. So the writing was on the wall. We've been losing money, so we just figured we would stop now.
0: Another restaurant that's decided to stop now, or stop a week ago to be more precise, I think we're ready to order, yeah, is Zola. Uh,
2: Can I get the Zola? And then I think we're going to split the anchovies and the avocado mousse. And I will have the Zola sangria.
0: The day before the decade-old Penn Quarter eatery shut its doors, I paid a visit with Jessica Sidman. She's been covering the rash of restaurant shutterings as food editor for the Washington City paper.
2: Restauranteurs tend to be very sensitive. About closings, as there are very few people who are going to be absolutely upfront with you. But I talked to one of the managers at Zola, and they told me that the reason they were closing was because the owner, who actually owns the spy museum next door, didn't want to be in the food and wine business anymore.
0: And that business is tough. And here in D.C., Sidman says, it's getting even tougher.
2: D.C. is an increasingly popular place to do business, and as a result, real estate is expensive, and because the restaurant scene has exploded and you have so many more restaurants, it's not good enough to just be good anymore.
0: In short, she says, if you're a new restaurant owner in D.C.,
2: if you make it a year, that is an achievement.
0: And if you make it. Two
2: years, says restaurateur Constantine Stavropoulos.
0: That's like a miracle. If you get to
3: five, you're an institution. And uh, we've been blessed and lucky that we've gotten going on almost 14 years now with Trist.
0: Indeed, Stavroulos is the driving force behind Trist in Adams Morgan and at the Phillips Collection. He also owns the Diner in Adams Morgan and Open City in Woodley Park. He's currently building a new restaurant here at 11th and Monroe Street in Columbia Heights. Um, when might opening be?
3: Hopefully end of... The summer. I've invented a few months. I keep saying uh, J-August and June and July, but I'm hoping end of summer. That's that's kind of what we should do.
0: Possibly October?
3: I hope not, but possibly.
0: <laughs> the as yet unnamed eatery will be part diner, part coffee house, and part bar. And it'll be open 24 hours. That seems like a pretty bold choice. Well, we do already.
1: The yeah, diner. But, uh, right, uh-huh. but
0: Adams Morgan, I feel like this neighborhood's more residential.
1: You're
3: right. This uh, place I see more like a diner you'd find in a Brooklyn neighborhood. We're not expecting
1: a big graveyard crowd like at the diner.
0: Steveropoulos says he does bemoan the recent restaurant closings, but he celebrates the numerous openings, especially here on 11th Street. Meridian Pint, Kangaroo Boxing Club, Maple, El Chucho's, they're just several of the many eateries that have recently hit the D.C. dining scene.
1: So I don't think we're at a net loss of
3: restaurants. I think we're probably at at a net gain right now.
0: And Eater DC editor Amy McKeever agrees. Like Jessica Sidman at the City Paper, McKeever says DC's dining scene is exploding.
4: Yeah, I think it's been exploding for a while, and maybe just continues to accelerate. I think there's a fancy science term for that, but <laughs> don't know it. <laughs> Actually, I think accelerate
0: will do the trick, though that doesn't mask the fact that we're still seeing so many restaurants close. In fact, in late June, McKeever wrote an Eater DC post titled
4: 30 Days of Terror. Yeah,
0: 30 Days of Terror. In which she listed all the restaurants that had either announced or carried out closures since late May.
4: I would just found myself writing more about closings than usual. And then finally that one week happened where like every day I was writing about at least one or two restaurants closing. And they were not just all small ones, but it was pretty big name and beloved restaurants.
0: McKeever attributes the closings mainly to the economy and rising rents.
4: And sure, quality could play a role too. When these shutters do happen, what I often see immediately after I post about it is people saying, oh, No surprise. The food there was terrible. Everything sucked. And while they may
0: be right, she says, you have to remember one thing. Lost restaurants mean lost
4: jobs. There were some former employees at Buddha Bar who were trying to reach out and help these people. Like a guy, he works with a bunch of restaurants and he had worked at Buddha Bar and was trying to hook up all of his old friends with new jobs by doing like a Facebook campaign and emailing all the restaurateurs that he knew. And one can only hope that all the people who lost their jobs in the 30 days of terror were able to find new jobs.
0: Of course, for some, working at a restaurant is more than just a job. Ron Neumeier says that at Armand's Chicago Pizzeria, it's more like being part of a family. A family that, first and foremost, includes staff.
1: A lot of the longtime employees that have been here 20, 25 years. And uh, there's been at least 10 marriages from employees just that we know of.
0: But it's also a family that includes customers, many of whom flocked to Armand's in its final days to devour one last pizza.
1: We had a father and son drive five hours from northern New Jersey. He had been telling his 17-year-old son since he was born about Armand's pizza, and his son had never tried it. And uh, I said, well, how long are you going to be in town? He said, we're driving back tomorrow afternoon. I said, oh, what else are you going to do while you're in town? Figuring he'd say, you know, Air and Space Museum, the Smithsonian. So, well, we're coming back for dinner tonight. I said, that's amazing. What are you doing tomorrow? We're coming back for lunch tomorrow. So it takes some of the sting out of having to leave after this long.
0: Because the way Ron Newmeyer sees it, at Armand's Deep Dish Pizza, the dishes aren't the only things that run deep. The memories run pretty deep, too. To get a peek at recent restaurant closings, along with new and upcoming openings, visit our website, MetroConnection.org. I,
4: have I am sitting in the morning, at the diner on the corner. I am waiting.
0: Among the new eateries cropping up around these parts are a bunch of places serving ramen. Traditionally, ramen has been the noodle soup of our college years, the cheap and easy stuff that nourished us through all-nighters and final exams. Emily Friedman brings us this story on how, here in Washington, ramen is making the leap from the dorm to the trendiest of menus.
5: To start, simply begin scanning your items and follow the system prompts.
6: Instant ramen is easy to make, filling, and undeniably cheap.
5: Seventy-seven
6: cents. It also bears little to no comparison to what's being served at the new ramen restaurants popping up in our region. An order comes through in the kitchen of Saku Ramen, which opened in Adams Morgan in late May. Chef Yu is torching strips of pork belly. She takes the charred pieces and lays them in a bowl over a tangle of noodles. The restaurant's owner, Jonathan Cho, watches as E U drowns the noodles in broth and heaps toppings over the entire surface area of the bowl.
1: Sliced green onion, a seasoned egg, which is a very traditional ramen topping.
6: E.U. is making miso ramen, which is one of the three main types of ramen found in Japan. The others are tongsu, which is a thicker pork bone broth, and a clear broth called shintan. And with so many choices, everyone has a preference.
1: Ramen, it's personal. People like to eat their ramen the way they like to eat it.
6: Even in the sauna that is Washington, D.C., in the summertime, The tables at Saku Ramen are packed. There are people slurping alone, slurping with friends, even slurping with a potential significant other.
1: I think 10 years ago to say I'm going to take a date out for a bowl of ramen would have been ridiculous and probably wouldn't be a second date.
6: But now there are ramen shops popping up in all corners of the city. In addition to Saku Ramen, there's Toki Underground on H Street, Ren's Ramen in Wheaton, and later this fall, Daikaya, a ramen restaurant being opened in Penn Quarter by the owner of Sushiko, Co., Daisuke Utagawa. While most of the restaurants have a more relaxed feel, where you can sit down, eat, enjoy, Utagawa says his noodle bar will be straight out of Japan.
7: In Japan, ramen restaurants is a very sort of utilitarian place. You go, you eat, and you get out.
6: His ramen restaurant will be coupled with an upstairs bar where you can hang out. But when it comes to ramen, he says, newbies should be warned. There is a learning curve.
7: When people are first introduced to ramen, they eat the soup first. And then there's these noodles, and they kind of eat the noodles later. Well, by that time the noodles are soggy, It's, it's not great.
6: It's a classic rookie mistake.
7: And as they get used to it, or as they start really liking the noodles, you always see them eating the noodles first.
6: As a young boy in Tokyo, Utagawa perfected his slurp.
7: The biggest mistake people make is they don't look down into the bowl. Put your face over the bowl and face downwards.
6: Also, when you bring the noodles up to your mouth...
7: Don't wrap your lips around the noodles too tight because you will burn yourself. Just like uh, wine, you know, when you taste wine, you go, you know, you you let the air bubbles in and that will agitate the wine and you get more of hidden flavors, the delicate flavors, the complexity. You'll get all that at the same time with the noodle.
6: (sniffs) As we open our minds to new techniques in noodle slurping, Washingtonians will also have to open their pocketbooks. Bowls of ramen at these new establishments cost 10 to $15. Utagawa says it's worth it.
7: A can of ravioli can be, I don't know, a dollar a can. But just because you eat that, you're not going to an Italian restaurant and say, why would I pay that much for this beautiful pumpkin ravioli?
6: Back in the Saku Ramen kitchen, Jonathan Cho pulls fresh noodles out of an airtight container.
1: We use fresh, custom-made noodles that we get freshly delivered to us every two, three days.
6: They've customized everything about this noodle, from the dough's air content to its curliness, to how chewy they are in your mouth. And when you take a hearty comfort food, add a gourmet's attention to the freshest and highest quality ingredients, and a touch of hipster charm, you'll end up with something you'd never find in a cup of noodles.
0: I'm Emily Friedman. So, gourmet ramen, oxymoron, or the next big thing in D.C. dining? We want to know what you think. You can tweet us. Our handle is at WAMU Metro, or email us at metro at WAMU.org. After
8: the break, cooking up Washington's wild plants. I do everything from put this in iced tea to making a lemon balm sorbet. That and more is just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5.
4: WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources.
0: Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. We're only, what, I don't know, a third of the way through the show, and I am so hungry right now. That's because it's our annual Down the Hatch show, where we dish all about stuff to eat, stuff to drink, and in just a bit, we'll crack open some local beer, gobble up some ice cream, and meet the makers of some spicy homemade sausage. So, stick around. But first, we turn to some foods that are a little more, well, out there? Environment reporter Sabrina Shore introduces us to a woman who's all about experimenting with some
8: truly wild cuisine.
3: Susan Belsinger lives in Brookville, Maryland. Her house is in the middle of the woods.
8: Herbs are what my life is all about, you know, and I use them to develop recipes and cook with. But I also use them in aromatherapy and medicinally.
3: And all I see here is green. It's beautiful. It's green, but I don't I don't see anything that I See in a grocery store here. So <laughs> show me what show me what's actually here.
8: So here we have violets and the leaves and the flowers are edible. They sorta of taste like a mild green lettuce. They're very high in vitamin A and C. And everything that is a weed here that you know people would pull it out, I leave in if it's not invading a plant space. They have a lot of trace minerals and vitamins that our regular plants that we grow every year don't have.
1: We
3: wander past wild ginger, mountain mint, and edible daylilies.
8: Try one. It's not dirty.
3: Okay, so you're just giving me a petal, this beautiful salmon petal. I'm gonna eat it. <laughs> it's sweet.
8: Isn't it sweet? Friendly? Oh,
3: it's like a fruit. Belsinger says when you're identifying wild plants you're going to eat, use at least two field guides. Three is even better. Some things are poisonous and other things need special prep.
8: You know about nettles, right?
3: Yeah, I know that nettles can sting me and that they hurt.
8: They hurt really bad. So you see, I just put my gloves on. Yeah. (laughs) All right. And so we're going to cut these and uh, take some of these in because nettles are so high in vitamin and mineral content. They're really good for you. One of the best greens that you could ever eat. But they're stingy, so you can't eat them raw. You have to wilt them down.
3: She points out different things she uses for salads and for syrups, tinctures and tonics. Bee balm tastes great in tea and spicebush goes in stew. Comfrey helps a sore ankle. These plants are all very common and just about everything is good for something.
8: So this right here is a, it looks like a clover, but it's a wood sorrel. Um, It's really
3: tart. Oh, yeah, I mean, that's like lemon Mm -hmm. level of tartness. Mm
8: -hmm. It's really nice to add these with other greens because it gives a flavor.
3: We wander back into the house (laughs) where rows of mortars and pestles mingle with orchids on sunny shelves. Dozens of well-used skillets hang from the ceiling and bundles of dried herbs hang from the rafters. Today, Belzinger is going to cook a frittata. In the kitchen, the wilderness is arrayed on the counters. Homegrown chard, mustard, beet leaves, and kale fan out like a peacock's tail. All the weeds she's collected on our walk are in the sink under well water.
8: That's the wood sorrel. This is the lamb's quarters, and this is the violets.
3: There's also purslane and orange nasturtium flowers. Belsinger sautés the chopped greens with oil and homegrown onions, and then gets the eggs ready.
8: If you're making a frittata, you have to figure two eggs per person. We're going to salt, sea salt, and grind some pepper in here. A
3: touch of nutmeg is a secret ingredient, and after the greens wilt down, Belsinger pours in the eggs and some grated cheese.
8: So this is really rustic. The egg greens are sticking up through it all. And that's perfectly fine.
3: Why do you think that so many of these plants are not known more widely? Why don't people
8: use them? Well, in Europe, the Mediterranean diet really uses wild greens. They're really good, and it's sad that we don't eat more of them.
3: A few minutes later, it's time to eat. Belsinger rubs spearmint leaves around the rim of glasses that she fills with iced tea. The tea itself is flavored with lemon and bergamot-scented bee balm flowers from the garden. Cheers. Oh, I just have never <laughs> had a more perfect iced tea on such a hot day. And those bergamot flowers, it's like drinking perfume mm-hmm. and taking a cool shower <laughs> in summer.
8: It's really refreshing.
3: And then the main course. The golden brown and green frittata is brought to the table.
8: Slide her off. Bon appétit.
3: Oh my gosh. This is so good. And I can taste... I can just taste a lot of different things going on.
8: You can get the bitter and the tart, you know. It's got deep, herby-green flavor, I think. It's really yummy.
3: Well, Susan Belsinger, thank you for this amazing meal made from amazing plants that I will no longer throw in the (laughs) compost pile. Good. Thanks so much.
8: Thanks. Thanks for coming out. That was
0: environment reporter Sabree Ashore with herbalist Susan Belsinger. To see some of Susan's recipes, as well as links to cookbooks and field guides, Check out our website, metroconnection.org.
9: Hey,
10: good looking. What you got cooking? How's about cooking? Something up with me. Hey, sweet baby. Don't you think maybe we could
0: find a separate- When the weather gets as sticky and stifling as it has this week, and your power's out for days at a time. What is one surefire way to cool off in a jiffy? Well, how about a big bite of ice cream? On Route 40 in Ellicott City, Maryland, you can get that dose of sugary salivation at a place called Soft Stuff. The ice cream stand has been around since 1984. But as Tara Boyle tells us, the local institution will soon undergo some major changes.
2: Hi, how are you guys? Doing good, how about yourself? Good.
1: We'll <laughs> take a uh, large orange twist.
11: Melanie Tresnak is only 18 years old, but she's already got some serious skills when it comes to soft ice cream.
4: Well, after, like, many years, I can, like, master, like, three cones at once, like, holding them in your hand.
11: Three cones at once simultaneously? How exactly does that work?
4: Oh, like, holding two cones in one hand while doing the other one and alternating hands. Wow. Yeah. That's
11: amazing. (laughs) It's a skill acquired, as she says, over many years of working at a soft-serve ice cream stand though it's a skill that comes at a price.
10: It saves a little time, but I don't know how many accents occur as a result of that, but uh, some of them get real clever.
11: Michael Wheel knows all the tricks of the soft-serve trade. His family opened soft stuff after his dad traveled to Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, back in the early 80s and had something of a revelation.
10: He said, I was talking to this old guy who had this little hole-in-the-wall soft ice cream stand. I started talking to him. He said, uh, we ought to do something like that in Howard County because there's nothing like that.
11: And to reinforce the, look at us, we're in Rehoboth feel.
10: We'll make it look like places at the beach. That was the original idea.
11: So the wheels attached a carry-out ice cream stand to the Forest Motel, which the family had been running since the late 60s. They built a long wooden walkway to add to the boardwalk ambiance. But they decided to part company with their beach brethren in one significant way.
10: The difference is we wanted it to be better quality ice cream than what the beach sells.
11: And the key to that?
10: Milk fat or butter fat content.
11: More milk fat equals creamier ice cream. And it was an instant hit at soft stuff. Banana splits, chocolate dipped cones, ice cream sandwiches known as soft stuffers. People swarmed to soft stuff to get their sweet tooth on. But what's interesting is that since the opening, the routine has become about more than just soft
10: serve. All of a sudden it was... Wow, we can sit at the picnic tables, we can sit in the grass, we can bring the kids, we can bring the dog. And I think it became, that's the intangible you're talking about, a a place for groups of young people or families to come and sit on the back of their their truck or SUV or sit in the grass or at a table and and spend a half an hour or so.
11: And you can still kind of do that at Soft Stuff. But most of the grassy spots here no longer exist. The Forest Motel, its in-ground pool, the diner next door,
10: they're now all gone. After being here since 1967 when we purchased the place, it's hard for me to even imagine that this would ever look like this.
11: Michael Wheel is looking at a landscape of dirt and construction equipment where his family's motel once stood. He's got big plans for this
10: site. They're bringing in over 19,000 cubic, 19, cubic yards of dirt to bring this up to level. This fall, after Soft Stuff closes for the season, a team of developers will break
11: ground on a mixed-use development here. It will include apartments, a chain restaurant, a spa where you can get massages and pedicures, and a new soft stuff. It'll be a sit-down ice cream parlor with amenities the old place didn't have, like bathrooms.
10: We want people to know that we're going to be the same place, and it may be a little different atmosphere. It won't be necessarily sitting under the trees, but we're going to to have enough open space. I think people can sit there and sit on the tables or, or, or walk around. So I think it's going to work. I don't think people will say I'm not going there anymore because I can't sit at a picnic table.
11: Speaking of those picnic tables, they were packed on a recent Saturday night as temperatures hovered in the mid-90s. Ron and Mary Talent of Woodstock, Maryland, had scored one of the tables and were savoring kitty size ice cream sundaes, dripping with chocolate and butterscotch.
12: Portions are always so large, if you get a kitty sundae, it's usually plenty.
11: <laughs> Mary says their kids got jobs at Soft Stuff in the early 90s, and the whole family has been coming here ever since.
8: It was just so delightful to come here on a Sunday afternoon, especially, and other families sitting here. The picnic tables, the trees by the pool, and the coolness, it was just so non-modern and commercial.
11: Non-modern is increasingly hard to find in this once rural corner of the Maryland suburbs. But Michael Wheel says even though the new soft stuff will look different, he's hoping it will become a community gathering place, and he's working hard to open in time for next year's ice cream season.
10: Hopefully we get a good winter, when I say good, nice weather, like we did last year, and they can keep building all year, and then we should be ready to go in the spring.
11: Ready to go with the same creamy swirls of soft serve that transport customers to a place and time when life was a bit slower, simpler, and above all else, sweeter. I'm
0: Tara Boyle. You can see photos of soft stuff on our website, metroconnection.org.
13: Get loving me.
0: After all this chat about food, I'm serious. My stomach really is starting to rumble a bit, and I suspect I'm not alone. So let's pause on all this nattering about noshing for just a bit and turn to one of our favorite monthly segments DC Gigs. This time around, we visit the world of artifact theft. Special Agent Kelly Maltagliati has a very particular mission to seek down our nation's treasures. Her job with the National Archives is part antiques roadshow, part CSI, and all very hard work. Producer Mark Adams caught up with her at the Civil War Collectors' Show in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania.
9: My name is Kelly Maltagliati. I'm a special agent in charge of the archival recovery team at the National Archives under the Office of Inspector General. I'm a criminal investigator, and I do regular criminal investigations, but I also focus on historical documents and artifacts that are stolen from the National Archives. So, see, so you have a Johnson document here? Uh, i got some Andrew Johnson documents, McKinley, uh, Winfield Scott Hancock. I've been doing this job at the National Archives for about nine years now. I remember the first day that I received a Lincoln pardon in the mail and held it in my hand, realizing I held the same document that Abraham Lincoln held. And right then, I realized the value of what the documents, the archives, have for people. It's a connection with history that you can't get from seeing the printed document, from reading something on the Internet. It's actually touching and connecting with history. So we're always looking for anything that would belong to the archives. We're missing the Wright Brothers flying patent. We're missing maps of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, some of the target maps missing a page from Eli Whitney's patent of the cotton gin. Whatever somebody is interested in is what they might take from us. That, that's 5,500. dollars oh, that's, that's a rare item. We're at the Gettysburg Civil War show. There's two of them during the year. The collectors and dealers come here and show their wares. They're selling to each other and to private individuals. Hi, Steve. How are you doing today?
7: Hi. Hi. How's the show going for you? Oh, it's going great. It's nice to see you again.
9: You too. We come here and look at the documents to see if there's anything that jumps out at us. And we often discuss those things with the dealer and let them know what we're working for. We are not here covertly. Uh, we're here to talk to the dealers and get to know them and let them know what we're doing. So, Dave, anybody um, have a lot of people come by today to our booth?
1: Uh, been a few people coming by, uh, very interested in what we do. They've been asking a lot of good questions. That family, the Romano family that deals with a lot of the uh, historic photographs, um, they were telling me that they were able to find an original photograph and then they were able to find a core badge from that individual's unit and they were able to match that up with the photograph.
9: Nice. So, yeah, there's another woman that has some photographs and she's not aware of what we do, so I told her I bring by a brochure and some business cards. I've always... Wanted to be a criminal investigator, and I love being a criminal investigator. At the end of the day, you feel really good about what you do, and you feel like you make a difference. That
0: was Kelly Maltagliati speaking with producer Mark Adams. If you have a distinctively D.C. gig you think we should feature on the show, let us know. Our email address is metro at wamu.org. And FYI, this story came to us through WAMU's Public Insight Network. It's a way for people to share their experiences with us and a way for us to get input on stories we're working on. You can find more information about the Public Insight Network by visiting slash pin. Everybody's working for the weekend.
10: Everybody wants a new.
0: Up next, the tricks of getting craft beer to customers.
14: You want to make sure that your distributor's got refrigerated trucks, a working cold box, things that are going to keep your beer the way it needs to be.
0: It's coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU
14: 88.5.
0: Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And as we continue going down the hatch this week and exploring the world of Washington cuisine... Let's not forget that said cuisine doesn't just include food.
1: good afternoon. How's everyone? Good, thank you. Ma'am, what may I bring in, afternoon? It
12: also includes
1: drink.
0: I'll let you order for us, Paul.
12: Okay, we'll have two authentic Washington gin rickies.
0: Certainly. Thank you. thank you. And in this case, drink means D.C.'s signature cocktail, the gin ricky, which, as historian Paul Dixon points out here at the Round Robin Bar downtown, was originally the whiskey ricky. That was back in the 19th century when the cocktail was invented by a lobbyist by the name of Colonel Joe Rickey.
12: There was a fruit vendor coming through the bar one night, and this lobbyist picked up a, a lime, cut it in half, squeezed it into a large whiskey glass, poured Polinaris water, which is equivalent now of club soda. and. Pula, that was the drink.
0: But whether you make your Ricky with whiskey or gin, Apollinaris water or club soda, one thing Paul Dixon suggests you do before you take your first sip...
12: My favorite all-purpose toast... ...is toast. Days of ease, nights of pleasure. (laughs)
0: Let me get that clinking sound. Okay. (laughs) And Paul Dixon knows a thing or two, or 1,500, about toasts. That's because he's the author of Toasts, over 1,500 of the best toasts, sentiments, blessings, and graces. So he has an ideal brain to pick when it comes to talking about toasts, particularly the history of toasts right here in Washington, D.C. This is a city that has, you know, presidents, political leaders, a large diplomatic community. So I'd imagine toasts have played a big part here in the district.
12: They've always been totally commingled with politics. And one of the things about toasting would be, whether you fast forward to today or you go back to the earliest days of the Republic, there was always a moment of sort of bipartisan celebration. You would say, no, here's to the Union. They could be that simple. You know, Congress, courage, and cash. I mean, that was the hard edge, you know. But it starts with, really, at the beginning with George Washington. When George Washington leaves office, there's such a a love of the man. that they, They compose these 13 toasts. In honor of Washington, in honor of the Declaration of Independence, in honor of the United States. And this was done all through the 19th century. In the mid-20th century, toasts sort of drifted away from the sort of short 15, 20, 25-word salutary, you know, this is to our future, this is our children's future. Often very simple, but heartfelt. But what happened in the middle of the 20th century, there was this epidemic of really bad toasts and toasts that went on for a long time. And there were a couple of my favorites. 1979, the president of Mexico was ticked off the United States for something, and gave a toast in which he enumerated all the crimes of the United States over the last couple hundred years, and President Carter was was the recipient of this toast, and all he could think to do was propose a toast in which he mentioned Montezuma's re- revenge, and it created a diplomatic <laughs> furor. The, I mean, there's another one. Um, the other breakthrough, in 1984, the premier of China is in Washington and gives a toast, 700-word toast, about the United States and China, and it signals the warming of relationships between the United States and China. I mean, that's the moment at which everybody says, ah, we may be able to work with these guys. And so there are a lot of these toasts that became moments of conciliation.
0: I would love to hear some examples. You have a copy of your book here. Are there some examples you can give us?
12: Here's one that was very popular in Washington during Prohibition. Here's the Prohibition, the devil take it. They've stolen our wine, so now we make it. (laughs) The most famous Washington toast. During the 20th century when the Washington Senators were the ball club, the big gag toast was, here's to Washington, first in war, first in peace, last in the American League. And this prevailed <laughs> through two different teams, the Senators, and prevailed even until the, when the Nationals first came here, when they first weren't doing well, or the second year especially, when they were in the last in the National League, they would be first in war, first in peace, last in the American League or National League.
0: So given that you've done so much research on toasts and you've read so many through the years, what are your tips for giving the perfect toast?
12: I think you beak short, you rehearse it. If you're stuck for good language, don't be afraid to steal from other people. Steal from Browning or Shakespeare or Dickens. You try to be whimsical. You try to be kind. You try to be celebratory. You're trying to make people in the room feel together. And, and you're trying to elevate. You're trying to elevate the room. You're not trying to say something snide or snippy. And uh, you want to leave there literally the feeling you've left a verbal souvenir, a piece of yourself on the table that these people will take away and remember for a long time.
0: I'll drink to that. Thank
15: you.
0: Paul Dixon is the author of Toasts, over 1,500 of the best toasts, sentiments, blessings, and graces. His most recent book, Bill Veck, Baseball's Greatest Maverick, came out in April. For more information on both those books and the roughly seven gajillion others Paul has penned through the years, visit our website, metroconnection.org. It's a
9: quarter to three.
0: And there's no one in the place except you and me
13: So set him up, Joe I got a little story you ought
12: to know We're drinking, my friend On to the end of a brief episode
0: Make it one for my baby All right, so now that we've drained the dregs of our gin rickies, let's turn to another classic drink, beer. But not just any beer. We're going to talk craft beer, brewed by small and independent breweries. And we boast several here in the D.C. region. But have you ever thought about how craft breweries keep those suds fresh on the way to your local bar or liquor store? Well, we'll find out in our weekly transportation segment from A to B. Martin DeCaro recently embarked on a bit of a brewery crawl to learn how they're getting their product into thirsty customers' hands.
13: Inside DC Brow, the noise is a constant.
16: Maybe my ears have gotten used to it, but yeah, it's typically around anywhere from like 60 to 70 decibels.
13: Co-founder Jeff Hancock's workers tend to keg cleaners, compressors, and massive silver conical-shaped fermenters, all humming away, accompanied by loud music on the radio, at the city's first new microbrewery since 1956. D.C. Brow was founded by a couple of cool guys last year, and their business is cool, too, in a manner of speaking. Here's Hancock's partner, Brandon Skall.
14: It's really, really important to us, since our beer is unfiltered, that our beer stays cold. And we go through extreme measures here at the brewery to keep those kegs cold while they're here. But once they're out the door, it's kind of out of our control.
13: That's when Skull the manager, and Hancock, the head brewer, have to trust their distributor and all the places that sell their product. Craft beer is fresh. It's not pasteurized. If it gets warm, it gets stale.
14: So you want to make sure that your distributor's got refrigerated trucks, your distributor has a working cold box, things that are going to keep your beer the way it needs to be as it goes through that transportation stage. To end, finally arrive at the account.
13: Before they can brew one ounce of beer, D.C. Brow's ingredients have to be transported over long distances. Their barley is from the Midwest, their hops from the Pacific Northwest.
16: The malt comes in uh, much larger orders, so that comes on flatbed truck. It's about two days' transport time. Uh, The hops take about about five days, because they're coming all the way from uh, Washington State.
13: With just five full-time and six part-time employees, Hancock and Skull coordinate all the logistics and brew all the beer. It's a process that recalls a past era.
14: That's how it used to be in this country, that there were so many regional, local microbreweries before Prohibition, and beer didn't necessarily get transported even from state to state uh, the way that now beer is shipped all over the country. Uh, It was consumed fresh, it was consumed local, and that's what I think we're kind of getting back to with all of these smaller local microbreweries opening up regionally across the United States. And it's a beautiful thing because people are getting to try and taste beer in a way that they've never tasted it before.
13: Another one of those new craft breweries can be found just 15 miles south of Washington.
16: My name is Bill Butcher, I'm the founder of Port City Brewing Company.
13: Port City is in Alexandria, Virginia. The morning I show up to talk with Butcher, a flatbed truck is growling in his parking lot preparing to bring in an electricity generator. He lost power in last week's ferocious storm, so he's trying to save what beer he has on the premises. His brewery only opened last year.
16: Our beer has a limited shelf life of 120 days, and we do guarantee the quality for 120 days, but it tastes best within 90 days.
13: When it's business as usual at Port City, Butcher and his employees usually have no problem getting their beer to market fresh.
16: It goes on trucks and our wholesaler, they use uh, refrigerated trucks so they're able to keep the beer cold on their trucks. Um, It's written into their contract actually that they must keep it cold while it's under their care.
13: And he's strategic about the amount of beer he'll sell to a liquor store in a single order.
16: Since nobody has enough cold space, uh, the way we deal with it is just keeping inventory short and making sure that nobody buys too much that they can't sell in in a very short period of time.
13: Like his fellow brewers at D.C. Brow, Butcher has to coordinate the shipment of his ingredients over long distances.
16: Our Pilsner malt comes from Germany. The hops, they also come from England, they come from Germany, they come from the Pacific Northwest.
13: Butcher, whose name doesn't fit his profession, decided to become a brewer for the same reason someone may prefer to buy vegetables at a farmer's market.
16: My wife and I have been committed to local food and drink for a long time. And it was about four years ago when we realized that we're buying all of our groceries from local producers, our meat from local farmers, and the beer that we were buying was coming from the west coast of the U.S. And that really got us looking at other options that are more local, more close to home. Since
13: there weren't any microbreweries around, he opened his own.
16: And yes, I'm very thirsty for a beer
13: right now. I'm Martin DeCaro.
0: About four miles southwest of D.C. Brow is Eastern Market, the Capitol Hill landmark known for its bustling weekend crowds, its flea market, and its fresh foods. Three of those fresh food businesses are owned by the same family. Canales Quality Meats, Eastern Market Grocery, and Canales Delicatessen. The owners are three brothers who, decades ago, came to the U.S. from El Salvador. John McCone recently spoke with two of the brothers and one of their sons about immigrating to the States and starting businesses here in the nation's capital.
17: Okay, it's going to be a minute, please. Yeah. Thank you very much. My name is Juan Jose Canales. I own Canales Deli at Eastern Market. been in business for 29 years. We are very lucky to be next to each other with my brother Jorge, who owns Eastern Market Groceries. And next to him is Emilio. He owns Canales Quality. Emilio Canales is my name. I'm working here for this April 20 year. Work with my family,
13: my sons, my wife. My name is Carlos Canales. Uh, I work for Canales Quality Meats. My father is Emilio Canales. I've been here for 20 years. i started when I was 10 years old. I would sleep underneath a cabinet. I had my own pillow and blankets because we come in bright and early at three in the morning, four in the morning.
17: The last piece of the turkey, the tail, the tail, the tail. I come in this country in 1986. I came in in 1970. I actually was the first one who lived the family. I was only 20 back then. And I didn't have anybody but friends. I uh, come with my family, my wife, my three boys, my three sons. Back in El Salvador in the 1970, I was a student. I was going to university. In my country, we have a store, but we don't sell meat. And I grow cow. My country was very dangerous. The civil war, we don't have choice to come here. There was a long strike back then for political reasons. And then I decided to leave. So I came in and... Hoping to stay a year or two, by then things would be better back home. Things were deteriorating, so I was creating roots over here. I met my wife, uh, she's from Ecuador. I always want to get independent, a small business. Someone told me about Eastern Market, and I was very lucky that day that I came over and this lady was trying to retire and needs a buyer. So I was able to come in. fire happens on April 30, 2007. And right away, we thought it was the end of Eastern Market. But with the support of the mayor and the community, we were able to survive. Uh, within two years, we were back in the old building. And I consider Eastern Market a monument
13: for community. And I think the market in general became more united after that fire. We became a bigger family, a more a more united family. Um, I think we had a lot of discussions and arguments before the fire. Luckily, the community was behind us and backed us with every way that they could, and we're still here.
0: That was Juan Jose Canales, Emilio Canales, and Carlos Canales speaking with Metro Connection's Jana McCone. To see photos of the Canales family and to learn more about Eastern Market's offerings, visit our website, metroconnection.org. now, our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Deanwood in Northeast D.C. and Tacoma Park in Northwest D.C.
15: Well, my name is Sahat Walker. I'm a 14-year D.C. resident and a five-year Deanwood resident. And I'm also the project director for Deanwood by Design. It's the an arts and cultural temporium project. Deanwood is bounded by Eastern Avenue, as well as Nanny Helen Burroughs. We have a lot of nice parks and places to walk. It's sort of like a small town in the city. A lot of houses are spread out. I like it because I grew up in a small town on the eastern shore of Maryland. Deanwood is sort of reminiscent of that. And I think that's very attractive to people starting families. The catchphrase or the motto that comes up always is a self-reliant people, and that goes back into the 1950s when the community here felt they were overlooked and the rest of the city, they weren't providing the services that the people needed here. The community went ahead and built their own houses and businesses and just basically relied on themselves. Here, I really feel like I'm um, at peace. When I walk out the door, it's all I see is trees. Places like Deanwood and Anacostia are becoming more attractive to that generation that might want to consider staying here and raising their families.
5: Virginia view and I have lived in Tacoma Park on the same street since 1969. Tacoma DC would be the northwest corner of the city from Van Buren, Georgia Avenue and Eastern Avenue. We're a couple blocks from the metro. I can walk to two different post offices, I can walk to the Safeway, I can walk to two different CVS bank if I want to. We wanted a neighborhood that had more people of color. So we wanted a more integrated neighborhood, if you will. So it was a conscious decision to move here to Tacoma. We had heard about its reputation as an activist community and a community where people organized around issues that we were concerned about we moved here right after the riots over the course of a couple of years we saw a shift in terms of more african americans moving in but that changed very quickly and i would say now it's almost about like it was we moved here in terms of the racial makeup
0: we heard from sahat walker in deanwood and virginia view in tacoma park If you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, send an email to metro at wamu.org. Or visit us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash metroconnection.org. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. That is Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Ben Benashur, Emily Friedman, Martin DeCaro, Tara Boyle, and Jonna McCone, along with reporter Mark Adams. Our acting news director is Memo Lyons. Our managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our interns are Jessica Officer and Rafaela Benin. Donna McCone, Lauren Landau, Raffaella Benin, and Jessica Officer produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU Engineering and Digital Media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can see all the music we use on our website. That's metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on MetroConnection.org, you can find our Twitter and Facebook links. You can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. To listen to our most recent episodes, click the podcast link. Or just find us on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week for Health and Wellness, a show featuring some of our favorite Metro Connection stories about medicine, nutrition, and overall health. We'll meet a dancer who's battled some major physical issues. We'll visit a Georgetown pharmacy celebrating its 100th year of business. And we'll hear from the author of a new book that uses action, adventure, and fantasy to explore the rare condition known as MPS.
13: That's not bad. If you can't talk, you can still laugh. Yeah. So we've got that going. Right, buddy? I'm Rebecca Shear and
0: Thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU
13: 88.5 News.